come in, everybody. We're going to get started here. Um, I uh, just want to start off by saying uh, there are several people in this room who knew me when I was a very wee person, <laughs> some of whom were my piano teachers, some were... Uh, yeah, they saw me dance in a tutu in Ponderosa Chapel when I was 10 years old, so it's, just want you to know it's taken a lot for me to stand up here and say to myself, I'm an adult, I've been an adult for 10 years, and I can do this, uh, but I'm super excited. Uh, when Emily asked me to speak on this in January, my brain just started going, and I've been thinking about it since then, so know that this is going to be very discussion-based. Um, I'm going to be asking for your thoughts all along the way. Um, but my name is Claire, as I said this morning. Uh, my history with Hume is long. Um, it's kind of been a home away from home for me and my family um, for many years, minus three years when I was in middle school and we actually lived here full-time. So, um, yeah, it was it was home for those years, which was really sweet. Um most recently, I got married in the Joshua Lodge almost two years ago, which was really sweet. So Hume is a really, really special place to me. Um, so far, my career has actually been in international disaster relief through an organization called Samaritan's Purse. Um, so for the past six years, um, I've worked in different capacities with them in different countries around the world, and it's just been such a gift to see how God is using and growing his church all over the globe. Um, with that, I really love biographical storytelling. I, uh, whether it's an article or a book or a documentary, I love hearing stories about real people. Um, and though I've not had any biographical writing of my own published, I have had the privilege of working with about five different people on projects of their own, and I've learned a lot in those journeys along the way. Um, so I'm excited to... Yeah, share that with you, dialogue with you, um, and hear maybe what some of your experiences have been as well. Um, before we open, I'm just going to open with uh, one more one more housekeeping thing. There is a, an email sheet going around um, that is like an email list. I've got uh, a sheet of like different internet articles and a list of books and podcasts that I used as I was putting this together and researching. Um, if you would like access to that, I thought about printing them off for all of you and then I realized you wouldn't be able to click the links. So I thought it might be better if you have a digital copy and then you can just, you know, click right to everything. Um, so if you'd like a digital copy, you can just put your email on that list and I will send it to you. Um, I am also willing to send a PDF copy of the slides if that's helpful to you. So. Uh, that's about all, and uh, yeah, we can jump right in. Um, if you haven't heard of some of these books, I will be referencing quite a few books along the way and authors, but if you haven't heard of them, don't worry about it. They're just examples. I'll probably be able to give you enough context that we can keep moving forward. Even I haven't read all of them in entirety, so it's okay. Um, yeah, just know that they are just examples. Um, so, without further ado, uh, let's roll in to our first section. We're going to talk about uh, where to begin finding stories that inspire. 
Um, have you ever read or watched something that you knew was trying to make you feel a certain way and it just wasn't doing it? <laughs> like the music's playing, the dog dies, you know, you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be sad, but I'm not, you know, or the, the character in the book gives like this monologue at the end and you know that you're supposed to be feeling inspired and delighted and you're just like, nope, not doing it, not doing it. Yeah, here's the thing about art. It's subjective, right? We all have things that we connect with and don't connect with in different different pieces of art that we see, whether it's a painting or a movie or a book. Um, but some stories inspire lots of people. Um, they remind us that God is at work in all times and in all places, that he is constantly using our circumstances to make us more like Jesus um, and show us more of who he is. So in this first section, we're going to look at how to find stories that inspire lots of people. And for that, I've got six recommendations. Uh, the first is to make cool friends. <laughs> um, it is my belief that friends make the best uh, subjects for these types of projects because they're already ready to share the details of their lives with a wider audience. They're already bought in. Um, you are more likely to be entrusted with this type of an endeavor if you already have a relationship with this person, right? Um, if this person already knows and trusts you. So my first piece of advice is go make cool friends. Uh, make them at church, at school, in the cafeteria, wherever you happen to see them. Learn about the people in the circles in which you already move. You can see who's there. The second is practice. Uh, in order to be entrusted with this type of an endeavor, um, spearheading the documentation of somebody's life on paper, you have to be good, or at least decent, right? Like Eric was saying last night, give the time. Give the time to your craft. Uh, do what all the greats say, which is force yourself to write at least a couple hundred words a day about literally anything. They say that something good is bound to come out eventually, right? I found that to be true in seasons where I forced myself to write a lot. I get better with practice. Um, take any writing opportunity that you're given, no matter how small, especially if they're giving you an editor for free. Um, for those of you who've worked with editors before, it really moves your work forward, right? Having somebody else look at your work and give their perspectives and give their advice and see something new that you don't see, that you can't see. Fresh eyes, guys, especially for free. Amazing. Take those opportunities. Um, and whenever God brings you those opportunities, give it your all. Don't procrastinate. I feel like such a hypocrite saying this right now. But don't procrastinate. Try not to. Give it all the time it deserves. Um, make sure it's your best work because you never know where it's going to lead. Third recommendation is be open. Uh, in my personal experience, once people know that you have even very minimal experience 
in this type of writing, the next stories will find you on their own. Um, I got my first biographical writing project like this in 2017. Uh, and that summer, whenever I was asked um, what I was going to be doing after graduation, I was just honest. I told people the type of writing I was going to be doing. Um, and since then, I have had five additional people come and ask me for help with their projects or connect me to somebody else who wanted a partner um, in that journey. And so when the story finds you, I think this is the easiest way to start because this, you don't have to convince this person that they need to tell their story, right? They're already in. They're already committed to that. Um, and they're already prepared to give the time with you, right? They found you. They know you have experience. They're ready to sit with you and start writing, right? Number four is ask, ask the hard questions. Does this person's story inspire and encourage you? If it doesn't, that's not going to show in your writing. Are you curious to learn more about this person's life, what they've been through? If you're not, that's not going to come through in your writing. Number five is start small. Before you jump into a long commitment with somebody with a writing project like this, Try it out first. Figure out if you drive really well together. Figure out if you are the best person to be working with them. Um, try writing an article or a short story about them first and see if you can get that published in a, in a small or big publication. Um, but most importantly, see how your interviewing goes. Figure out if you like putting those interviews into story format for that person. Number six, I think, is perhaps the most important. Um, master the art of interviewing. There's a book uh, referenced on the screen here that's also on the research page, but um, it's called On Writing Well by William Zinger. And he's actually a journalist, so he writes mostly articles that are all nonfiction, but he does a lot of interviewing with people. So his chapter on interviewing is so, so helpful. Um, what I will tell you about that chapter is that much of this skill of interviewing is developed over time, over practice with different people. Um, it's about building instinct, knowing when to push harder, when to push further into what someone is talking about, ask them more details about that thing, when to pull back when, when you sense that they've finished talking about that, um, when to stop and take a break right? Um, when you start out practicing interviewing, it's good to have a list of questions, you know, to guide your, your conversation. But you should know that as you build that instinct, better questions will occur to you naturally over time. As you work with that person more, as you get to know them better, you will learn what direction you need to go in that conversation every time. So the last bullet point on here is about recording interviews. And this is going to be our first discussion topic. 
um, whether it's recording on a notepad or a recording device, like putting your iPhone out and doing a voice message or a voice memo, what are some pros and cons that you guys can think of by using those two methods of recording an interview? What are some pros and cons you can think of? Let's start with pros. You can just shout them out. Exact quotes, right. You have documentation of every word they said and every way they used it. Yes. Anything Voice else? inflections. Voice inflections. That's really important. Yes. How they said something. Anything else? What other pros do we have? Well, you can go back and you can hear it because you miss a lot. You do. Especially when you're writing it mm -hmm. down. It's so true. Yeah. Your hand is never going to move as fast as the person's voice, right? Unless... You are, you know, you're good at shorthand, which I'm not. But if you're good at shorthand, that's good. Um, how about for notepads? What are some pros about having a notepad out while you're interviewing? You have to write fast. You do have to write fast. It's so true. You might end up with an outline of your entire conversation, which is really helpful if you have, you know, like your hour-long voice memo and you're like, mm, 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 you know, trying to figure out where that thing, that quote that they said was, you're searching for it in this hour-long conversation. How about cons? Oh, go for it. The process of taking notes helps me guide clarity and direction. Ooh, okay. That's really good. That's really good. Uh huh. It does help to distill and to the voice of. It helps to to give it like something, give it some life. Even when you're just taking notes in a class, like, mm -hmm. you cannot possibly take all the notes that everything that you said. So of course you do the process like on the spot mm -hmm. and start to develop the voice of what you're going to say later. Absolutely. In that moment. And maybe even like the most important mm -hmm. things that come out, you're going to start to highlight those things. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. A notepad can be less intimidating for someone than a recorder. Absolutely. Yeah. How about cons for notepads and recorders? Technology fails. Technology fails. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Not the best ever. Listen, like I just I don't have time. I, I know. I know, and somehow it's never as good the second time, right? It's never as good as you remember it. Like these, I don't know if you guys, if you guys have experience in interviewing, sometimes it's just never as good the second time. Anything else? You know, I think as long as you get that person's permission, like full permission to start recording, I mean, that would be necessary definitely before you start recording somebody. Um, but outside of that, I think if you have their consent, Probably not. Um, yeah. Any other cons for you guys? So, yeah, we've talked about sifting through an hour-long conversation on an iPhone. Probably not fun. Um, I will say one of the things that I, that I read in this book is that um, when you are going back through these conversations and you're trying to take a verbal conversation that you had with somebody and put it on paper. William uses this line where he says, infinite stitchery is required. <laughs> and I think that's so true because you're never going to be able to take every word they said and make it sound good in an article or book format, right? It's going to take a lot of sewing things back together, right? And so you just have to be prepared for that. 
My advice is this. Practice interviewing with and without a notebook, with and without a recording device. Because you're going to find that different things work with you, right? Better, different things help you to be present more. And different things are going to hinder your subject that you're talking to. Some people are going to be more uncomfortable with a recording device. Some people are going to be more uncomfortable that they don't have your eye contact because you're looking at a notebook. It's going to depend on the person. Um, yeah, I worked with a gentleman, this first project I had in 2017. And uh, yeah, when we would do our interviews together, we would sit down in his office and uh, I would have my notebook out and I'd start the recorder and what I found as the weeks went on and we did more interviews together is that he would go off on several rabbit trails in one conversation. And even if I tried to bring him back to the original story he started with, he was gone. <laughs> he was gone, you guys. And I think because I was so focused on my notes, I was so focused on creating an outline, he didn't think I was present enough to be guiding the conversation where it needed to go. And so he would ignore me <laughs> and he would just keep going down that rabbit trail. <laughs> so I want you to hear me. Different things are gonna work for you and different things are gonna work with different people. And what you need to figure out is what helps you stay the most engaged with that person and what makes them feel the most comfortable. Any questions on that before we move on to the next section? I think there is a space to do both, right? You can be recording and then... Yeah, if that works for important. you and it works for your person, yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. With dictation, you know, I... Again, infinite stitchery is required, but I yeah. think you're going to have a better time of like copy and pasting and maybe editing. Um, I would be curious to see how that impacted your writing though, because you might find it harder to move away from the transcript of that conversation um, and turn it more into like a narrative, right? I would be curious to see how that worked but yeah definitely technology yes. it's great sometimes that would be yeah yeah that's a great idea mm-hmm Thanks, guys. I so appreciate your feedback. This is, this is why we're here. This is so good. Before we move on, I want you guys to take just a minute and write down the name of someone you know that you think you might be able to practice this with. Um, you don't have to do it. <laughs> but if you would like to, think about a person that you already know. Um, that you could maybe write an article or a short story about or even just practice interviewing for the sake of interviewing. Um, and then look up at me when you're done and we will keep on moving.
All right, so got your person to practice with. Um, we are gonna pretend that at this point, you've done all your interviewing with them, it went really well, you've got all your stuff, you're ready to start writing. How will you tell their story? Um, yeah, we are gonna do a quick little exercise here. Um, I want everybody to think of a book or a film, if you can't think of a book, uh, that really impacted you. One that stuck with you for a long time or made you think differently about something from then on. And then just shout them out when you're ready. A book or a movie? Ooh. I haven't heard of that. Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's nonfiction. It's nonfiction. He's the one who wrote Princess Bride. Oh! The Adventure and Screen Trip. Okay. The Adventure and Screen Trip? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anybody else? Demon Copperhead. Ooh, that just came out, didn't it? And that is fictional. Yeah, I believe so. Technically, but, it really but it's kind of based on a true it. story, right? <laughs> I just gave mine away, sorry. Who wrote that? A what? Sorry about my terrible handwriting. <laughs> yes. It is a book called Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Rose Dibler. Uh-huh. And it is a true story about her life as a missionary. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the Japanese Women, ah, yes, beloved, love it, love it, love it, love it. I just, re- I just reread it. Like here we go, so good. Yeah, Melody. The hardest piece. Mhm. The. The hardest. The hardest piece is that nonfiction. Okay. Is it peace as in peaceful? Okay. Bonhoeffer. Oh, sorry. Oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The biography? Yes. So good. Anybody else? The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place. Yes. So good. We are going to talk about that briefly in just a few sections. Anybody else? The End of the Spear. The End of the Spear. Yes. East of Eden. Yes. I actually haven't read that all the way through. But I'm excited to. It's been on my list for like five years. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks guys. All right. So I think you've already guessed this. But when we think about biographical writing, we often think that it can only fall in the nonfiction category. And what I want you guys to walk away with today, we're going to talk about more in this next segment, is that there is a place for 
creative license. Um, as you guys can see up here, you've all been impacted by a variety of different stories. Some true, some partially true, like being in Copperhead is partially based on true people, true events. Um, and then others are completely fictional, right? But they, they all do something in our hearts, right? Um, one of the first things you are going to have to decide after you sit down with this person that you've spent a lot of time interviewing is this. What perspective are you going to do the telling in? Um, are you going to use first or third person? First person is, I did this, I said this, I went here, I went there, right? Third person is a little bit more removed. He, she, he said this, she said this, right? Um, the second is, do you need to use creative license? Um, to what degree do you need to use creative license? And that is what we're going to be talking about in this section. So first, we're going to watch a quick video. Um, it features an author named Jeanette Walls. If you guys ever read the book or saw the movie The Glass Castle, uh, that is her memoir, which is about her life. Um, when that was finished, her next book was this book called Half Broke Horses, which was a book about her grandmother. Um, I don't think you can, you can kind of read it, but right above the title it says, A True Life Novel, which is like such an interesting phrase to me. What does that even mean? Uh, a True Life Novel. And so we're going to watch this video of Jeanette talking about this book that she wrote about her grandmother. And what I want you to listen for is this. What are some of the reasons Jeanette chose to write this book in first rather than third person? And what are some of the advantages and strategies that enabled her to do that? So what are some of the reasons Jeanette chose to write in first rather than third person? And what are some of the advantages and strategies that enabled her to do that well? The reason I wrote um, Half Road Horses in the first person is because I felt it gave an immediacy. I, I, I wanted to capture Lily's voice. Lily had a very distinct and, and powerful, a unique voice, and I wanted to, to capture her spirit. I didn't know my grandmother growing up. That was one of the ways I, believe I was able to capture her voice. I have a very vivid memory of this tough, leathery, sort of yellow skinned woman who just, she always picked me up, she always yelled. She never said anything, she just always yelled. She sang, she danced, she chopped guns, and I was always captivated by her. It's always this experience where I went to see my grandmother because she was so different from my mother. Even though they both were incredibly full of life, um, Lily Casey Smith, she played honky tonk piano. I, I had a lot of vivid memories of Lily. And in fact, um, my mom would always tell me, you're just like my mother. You, Jeanette. Um, what are some of the reasons Jeanette chose to write in first person? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I really got at her voice. Yeah. Did you say anything else? Yeah. Could you uh, repeat some of the uh, answers for the audience, please? Oh, definitely. Thanks. Yes. Um, so, do you want to repeat? It, uh, it just captured her. It captured her <laughs> voice. Yeah, it captured her voice best. Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. 
Anybody else? What else did you hear in the video? Yes. So, like, she mentioned that she resonated with her grandma, and so it seemed like it would probably help her to explore a little bit of her own, like, the things about her grandma that resonated with her, mm-hmm. like, as the writer, so it should be kind of a, a cool experience for you. Yeah, so she really resonated with her grandmother, so finding similarities between herself and her grandma, definitely. Anything else? Because she wanted to talk about a divisive person and put a person without imposing judgment. Wow. Yes. I did not think of that. <laughs> that is so true. So um, it can be hard to write about a divisive person. A divisive person in third in person. Third person. Without sounding judgy of them. That's, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, did you guys hear the line where she said, I wanted to capture the immediacy? I was going to say that, but I'm yeah. not exactly sure what she meant by immediacy. Ooh, I'm so glad you asked. I think what she means is um, she wanted to capture in the moment, like, what her grandmother's life was like. And not just, my grandmother lived here, she went here, she did this, you know what I mean? It's a little bit further away, right? I think it, by immediacy, she just means I, right? I did this. I want to see. Yeah, it's, it is, certainly. Yeah. What are some advantages and strategies that enabled her to write about her grandmother in first person so well? That she knew her. Well. Yes, yes that she had personal memories of this woman, right? Yeah. She also admired her, which gave her fuel to spend the time on the project. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, she not only like loved her very much, but felt very similar to her grandmother. Yeah, absolutely. She doesn't mention this in the video, but you can imagine that she also had access to a lot of secondary sources. So even though her grandmother was deceased when she started to write the book, she still had access to the memories of her mother, her siblings' memories of her grandmother, right? Lots of people directly in her life who knew her grandmother. Um, So what I want you to understand um, with this video is that first person, writing in first person, is a lot more work than writing in third person. It's a lot harder to do well unless you know the person inside and out, right? Um, It can be done, most certainly. And we are going to talk about more examples of how people did that and how they did it well. Um, But that's what I want to impress as we move forward, is that it is very difficult to do that in a way um, that that does justice to that, to that person well without being them, right? Um, I, I think we could argue that it was easier for Jeanette because her grandmother had already passed, right? Um, I wanted to focus this presentation on writing about people who are still living uh, because I think it's harder. It's harder to do that. Um, and it's so much more relational, right? And so that's, that's kind of where we're focused. But um, with that, we're going to move on to talking about creative license. This is my creative license spectrum. Um, and before we dive in, uh, I do want to mention that it is near impossible to write about a real person without doing some degree 
of juggling or shifting or combining different events or people in their life. Because if you didn't, it would read painfully slow at times, right? Because life is painfully slow at times, right? There's not a whole lot going on. But nobody wants to read at that pace, right? So we have to we have to change things. We have to do, we have to take some creative license in order to make things more readable, okay? Um, even still, as writers, we um, are entrusted with the privilege of portraying somebody's life on paper, and we have a massive responsibility to tell the truth about them to the best of our ability, right? Um, it is really difficult to hold these things in tension. How do you make something readable and exciting for an audience, but also do your utmost to tell the truth to the best of your ability? Um, so we are going to go through a couple different books, and they all represent a genre of biographical writing. And as we go through these examples, I want you guys to be thinking about how the subject that you've written on your piece of paper, how their story might come across differently um, based on the genre. And number two, what type of narrative is going to help you pull their story together the best? Um, so as we talk about you know, different levels of creative license, how, which type of narrative is going to help you best pull this person's story together. Um, we're going to move from most objective to more subjective. It's not as subjective as we could possibly be, right? But objective means based on facts, okay? So we are grounded in the facts. What happened? Dates, times, people, places, right? What actually happened and what is factual? On the other side of the spectrum, it's going to be more subjective, which means based on personal feelings or beliefs, okay? So it's more crafted. There is more creative license being used with the books on that side. Um, and the first book we're going to talk about is... <laughs> not there. Uh, Eric Metex's, uh Dietrich Bonhoeffer biography that he wrote. Um, it is written in third person, right? So it's a little bit more distant. Eric is not trying to be Dietrich. Um, with that, I'd argue there's a bit more objectivity than you would get in autobiography, right? Because it's a person writing about somebody else. It's not a person writing about themselves. Eric incorporates tons of different sources. It's like a 700-page book. Uh, there's letters that he wrote. There's prison records. There's like, you know, tons of different secondary sources that Eric pulled in to tell the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it is chronological, birth to death. So it is his whole life in one book. And that is what biography is. Next is autobiography. Um, so this is Long Walk to Freedom, which is about Nelson Mandela. Uh, it is written in first person. It's Nelson talking about himself, telling the story of his life. Um, it's still highly objective, right? Still highly factual, um, but less so than a biography. Unlike a memoir, it is comprehensive. So again, birth to death, full story, full life in one book. 
Um, what I found most interesting when I was researching Long Walk to Freedom is that it was actually ghostwritten by a man named Richard Stengel. So if you can imagine the number of hours that Richard had to spend with Nelson to get enough information to be able to tell Nelson Mandela's life story in first person, just imagine what that kind of project took, you know? Um, but with that, even autobiographies where people are writing about themselves can be ghostwritten, which is kind of a crazy thought, right? Next is, uh, it goes by two different names. So creative nonfiction, or it also goes by narrative nonfiction. Uh, this can really be in first or third person, so close or distant. Uh, it focuses on several different lives in one book or several different topics within the same book. Um, and it's usually not about the author. So it's somebody else. It's, it's somebody writing about somebody else or multiple people. Um, so one book on here is uh, John Krakauer's Into the Wild. What's interesting about both of these books is they're both written by journalists as well, which I think is interesting. Um, journalists are really good at pulling in different sources, right? So I think it's fascinating that I just happened to choose two journalists uh, for this genre. But John Krakauer wrote Into the Wild about, um, it focuses on one man's life, but it brings in like a bunch of other people who did similar things to this man, which is they went into the backcountry wilderness to kind of find themselves, okay? And so John kind of takes all of these people's lives to show similarities in how they were viewing the world and how they were trying to engage with it. And that's what that book does. Um, with Mountains Beyond Mountains, this was fascinating to me. I read it earlier this year. Um, Tracy Kidder, the author, is writing about a close friend of his named Dr. Paul Farmer. So it's written in first person, but it's Tracy being himself. Does that make sense? It's Tracy, like, talking about his friend. So he's like, my friend, Dr. Paul Farmer, did this, 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 right? It's a fascinating read because he knows this guy so well. Um, but you're almost able to see this guy in a different light because it's through the eyes of his friend. Really interesting. Um, and it covers multiple topics. So Dr. Paul Farmer was pretty integral in um, learning about how to cure tuberculosis and even um, uh, did a lot of work in HIV and AIDS in Haiti and other countries around the world. And so um, he was a fascinating man, and, but he's almost like too much, right? And so Tracy like going through a per another person almost helps you like understand him better because it's through somebody who cares about him so much. Next is memoir. So how is this different from autobiography? Well, memoir focuses on one aspect or time period of somebody's life. So if you ever watched the movie or read the book, Marley and Me, you're not getting the whole story of John Grogan's life, right? It's just this season when his family had this terrible dog named Marley, right? That's a memoir. Um, also, The Hiding Place. What's interesting about The Hiding Place is that right underneath Corey Ten Boone's name on, uh, on the cover of the book, it says, with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. So Corey didn't write this book by herself. She had help, right? And so um, even a memoir, again, even a memoir can be collaborative. Be a collaborative effort. 
Um, usually, though, it is in first person, so it is from the I perspective. Uh, lastly, we're going to talk about uh, historical or biographical fiction. So think about how far we've traveled <laughs> on the spectrum, right? We've moved from very factual to now a genre being identified as fiction, right? So we're not even in nonfiction anymore. We're in fiction, right? That's how much creative license these authors are using. Uh, these books are primarily in novel form. So if you've read Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, it's, it's very immediate, right? You're living Louis Zamperini's life in World War II, right? Like that's, that's what you're going through right there. Um, it is fiction that's based on a true story or combining true stories. Um, my favorite way that this genre is described is it's an imaginative reconstruction of historical events. It's an imaginative reconstruction of historical events. And that's kind of what we're doing on this end of the spectrum is we are fully reconstructing somebody's story, okay? Um, I want to talk about uh, this book because their process was so interesting to me when I started to research more about it. Um, this book is called What is the What? And it's about a gentleman named Valentino Acheting, uh, who's one of the lost boys of, of Sudan, if you've, if you've heard of that, that group of people. Um, it was about 20,000 children, mostly boys, uh, who walked over a thousand miles to escape a war that was happening in Sudan. They walked over a thousand miles to reach safety in Ethiopia or Kenya. And so this book uh, covers Valentino's story, all of the horrific things that he and his friends experienced on this treacherous walk from Sudan to safety in Kenya. And so it took Valentino and Dave, the author, more than three years to write this. It is a 560 page book um, cataloging all of, all of the things that happened to him. Uh, and here's the thing, we can ask ourselves, why is there a place for a novel type book in the biographical writing sphere? Why is there a place for a book like that? My argument is this, nobody is gonna read a 560 page human rights report but they might read a novel that's 560 pages long, right? And so these, these types of books can do things that no other type of documentation can, right? They can give people access to stories that nobody wants to read any other way. Um, when he was interviewed about this, pro uh, this project, the author, Dave Eggers, um, said this in a, in a podcast. And I'm going to read the full quote. This is just the end of it, so you can just listen to me. But he said, We set out to write a purely non-fictional book, but it was really restricting because Valentina was very young when this all began. He was six or seven years old, and there were big gaps in what he could remember of a given day or period. And so we started filling in some of those gaps with things based on my imagining, or a human rights report, or another lost boy's account. And then I would call Valentino and say, does this sound about right? 
And the freedom to be able to do that and able to put to get finished. And that's what I want you guys to take away. The freedom to be able to do that and able the book to get finished. So sometimes you're going to have to take more creative license in order to finish a story. And that's allowed. As long as the person that you're working with says that works for them, right? The reason that's okay is because Dave was calling Valentino every step of the way and saying, is this still true for you? Does this still feel right? Does this sound about right? Right? I want to read us one, one more quote. Uh, I read this memoir earlier this year. It's by a woman named Carolyn Weber. It's really good. Highly recommend. Uh, but in the introduction to her memoir, she writes, and again, I'm just going to read the whole quote, but the end of it's on here. She writes, uh, to preface her memoir, the following story is based on events as they actually unfolded during my first year at Oxford University. But as a result of moral delicacy required of memoir, most names have been changed, some features altered, and a few natures at times have been collapsed into one. But the recreated conversations, conflicts, crescendos, and conversion are, to the best of my ability, true in spirit. And I want to have another quick group discussion here. How far can we go with creative license? What are some of the boundaries that you think you would have as a writer writing about somebody else? Where's the line? I think it depends on your ability to admit it. So like she said that at the start of the book. So she's not saying this is 100% every fact true. She's saying this is what I did. This is a as close as I can get to representation in, in book form of my experience. Absolutely. So being honest about it makes it, to me, makes it... Makes it okay? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So because Carolyn was honest in her introduction, she laid it out there. She was like, this is not exactly how it happened. Yeah, exactly. Do you a book called A Million Little Pieces? No, I've never read that. <clears throat> it was part of the Oprah Book Club. Uh-huh. And... The guy that wrote it, um, he talked about him being in rehab and how, you know, at the day that he got out of rehab, his wife filed for divorce and he was sitting in the gutter and mm -hmm. doing drugs and all this stuff. And it turned out to not be true because his wife came out and said, that didn't happen. Wow. And his friends came out and said, that didn't happen. Wow. So how much of it would have to be? like the author's perspective versus other people standing up and saying, mm. that's not true. But the story was good, so like as the reader, I read it, as the reader, like it was an amazing story. It was a good story. Now, here's my question. He did claim it to be true. Okay, so that was my question. Was, was he marketing it as fiction or was he marketing it as a memoir? He was saying it was history. Yes. Wow. Okay. It was very okay. controversial. That's right very interesting. We are going to get more into a legal topic called libel <laughs> later on in the presentation. Um, but yes, it's a great that's example. What she's talking about here is basically, especially it sounds like she's British, the libel laws in England are very strict. 
Mm-hmm. And so in order to avoid being accused of black mm-hmm. yes, she's masking who someone is, but she's honest about how it affected her and her experience. Yeah. She is actually Canadian, but yes, went to school in England. Um, yeah, but uh, I, yeah, I think you're right. To avoid any issues, she's really upfront with like how she did this. Anybody else? What What would be some personal boundaries for you? What are some personal things you would do to make sure that you weren't taking creative license too far? Might want to yeah. Ask that's people. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like Dave did with Valentino. Does that sound about yeah. right? Every day, right? Every time you write a new paragraph, just is this still? Does this still feel right? Becca, what are you gonna say? I just resonate with what someone said. In terms of like it being true in spirit, I think the second that I was taking any story and crafting it in something that didn't ring true to that person or that time period, in order to tell what I thought might be a better story but less true, I think that that to me would be crossing a line, like morally for me in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're telling something more creatively but you're getting across the truth of it better, mm-hmm. I think that would be the more something that's a, a good way to take creative license or to tell something um, because it's, it's, it's more true to itself rather than being farther away. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, thanks, Becca. Yeah, Jeff. So it feels, and this is just me being silly, but it feels a little bit um, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. Like, in other words, if I write it, then it feels right from my perspective. So I feel like I'm supporting the truth as I see it. Mm-hmm. If you write it, then I doubt whether you've got an honest perspective and it's not a little biased by you trying to spin it the way that it fits your story better, which is the exact same thing I'm doing. But it, the, you know, we talk about that all the time. The history is written, you know, by the victors, and mm-hmm. they put a spin on it to go yeah. to their side. Yeah. So obviously, if people are still alive and you're writing it, mm-hmm. you have to match up, and that's what happened to him. Was there were people that were still alive that could question his version of the story? Mm-hmm. But if you're taking, say, the story of Mayflower. The last thing we want is a bunch of cold, dead facts on the page. We want somebody to come in and introduce something that may not be accurate at all, but at least helps carry those facts across the table. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that concept of the truth is in the eye of the beholder is, is the idea that we're going to project on it as we write our version of it because we want to tell a certain story. So I, I agree with the others that say, if that's in the introduction, and you say, this is my bias, this is where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. this is the version of the person I want to tell, it doesn't mean that someone else might tell a completely different story of that same person. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think it depends on if it's yours. Is it your memoir? Are you allowed to make that judgment? Or is it somebody else's? At which point you're responsible to them. My next question is, what might you do if the person you're writing about has passed away? What's something that you would do if you wrote something about somebody who had passed in order to do that check? What's maybe something you would do? Talk to their family. Talk to their family. Yeah. Is this okay for them? Do they feel like this is true in spirit about the person that they loved and knew, right? That's a great point. 
Any other thoughts or comments on that before we keep rolling? It was a great discussion. Thanks, guys. Uh, before we keep going, take a minute and write down maybe the perspective that you would try first, first or third person when writing about this person that you've written down on your paper to practice with, and maybe some of the genres that you liked best about trying with that person. And then we'll keep going. Anybody want to take a standing break? <laughs> we do this in training sometimes where you just like stand up and like stretch. I think it's really good if you guys need to get up and move around, please do. And if you feel like you just want to stand in the back, that's not going to distract me. If you feel like you're going to be able to listen better standing in the back, that's fine too. <laughs> Our next section is on crafting a narrative. We're going to talk about this in two categories. Uh, first, style, and then structure. Um, I really can't cover everything you need to know about style. So um, I just want to emphasize here, uh, again, that it is really difficult uh, to take a person, even a person that you know well, and translate them accurately onto paper. Um, it is in many ways so much more difficult than just taking something that you have in your mind and putting it on paper, right? Because there's a whole other person there. Um, and you have very little freedom in that or less freedom in that because you're constantly asking this person, is this okay with you, right? Um, and you're, again, your goal is not to communicate your own thoughts about that person well. It's to create, it's to communicate that person well, if they're still alive. Um, so let me share some advice from two, uh, two writers. The first is the guy we talked about earlier, William Zinzer, who wrote on writing well. Um, his advice is, number one, practice interviewing. Uh, number two, their own words will always be better than your words. Hmm. And number three, let the reader hear as much of that person as possible. Uh, last fall, I was contacted by a college professor of mine to work with her friend Melody to edit the structure of her autobiography that she had already uh, written. And she'd written it chronologically. Melody's actually here today, so. <laughs> um, Thanks, Mel. Uh, after working with Mel to rearrange the structure of her autobiography, um, it became clear to us that the next step was going to be to start editing line by line and start doing some precise work on it. Um, but I knew that she had kind of a group of editor friends 
who knew her voice a lot better than I did. They had read all of her blog posts over the years. They had spent hours, you know, in conversation. They'd been friends with her for years. Um, and I had just met Mel, right, just a few months prior. And so it occurred to me that if I tried to edit Mel's book at that level of precision, that it might end up sounding more like me and less like her. And so we decided that we should pass it to people who knew her writing voice better. Um, I really love the, the genuine quality of, 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 um, of Melody's writing. Uh, she's also really funny on paper. It's really hard to be funny on paper, you guys. It's like a gift that you have or you don't have. And Melody has it, so <laughs> I didn't want to lose any of that. And so I knew that we'd be able to retain it so much better if it was edited by somebody who knew her writing voice best. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, and that's what William says to do. Stay true to the voice of that person. It's going to help you capture so much more who they are, right? And that's what the reader wants is authenticity. It's the real person. Next, we're going to hear from Elizabeth Elliot. Um, she's definitely one of the greats for sure. Um, there is a longer list than this that she put together of writing advice. It's kind of excruciating, <laughs> uh, in some ways because it's just like, it's so different than like what a lot of people say to do. Um, but I love it and it's really challenging even for me. So that's on the resource page. Uh, I definitely will give you a copy, but Number one, she says, write about something, or in our case, someone that you know very well. Number two is aim at authenticity, never at style, originality, or creativity. What? Right? Number three, delete every word that has no real work to do. If you've ever read anything by Elizabeth Elliot, can you feel how true those are? Right? That is how she writes. There is no time wasted. No adjectives that are not absolutely necessary on that page. You don't have to be Elizabeth Elliot. That's not what I'm saying. But take a page out of her book. Sometimes efficiency does work the best. It is most helpful to readers. Um, yes. So, I wish we could spend more time on style, but there's a lot there. So, <laughs> next we're going to talk about structure. Um, what do I mean by structure? I mean the plot of your narrative. Uh, and you're going, plot? What plot? I thought we were talking about biographical writing. How does biographical writing have a plot? Um, even biographies can have some shape to them. Right? So if you remember high school English class, you may have seen a diagram kind of like this. I just learned like a week ago that it's called Freytag's Pyramid. Didn't know that. Didn't know that before. Um, you know, but it kind of shows the structure of a plot. Now with biographies, I would argue that you might have several pyramids, right, within one book. It's probably not going to read like a novel where there's just maybe one big one, right? There's going to be maybe multiple. 
Um, but life itself has seasons where there's inciting incidents and climax and falling action, and then you know things resolve themselves, right? And so, as you write, I would encourage you to be thoughtful about how you can create that experience for your reader. Um, how can you order events and shape things so that there's more tension? What is going to happen next? They want to turn the page, right? You want to kind of carry that tension forward um, in the book, in your article even, as you're writing in a short story. Um, remember that readers want to experience everything that's happening with the person, right? They don't want to read the Spark Notes version, right? They want to feel what that person felt. They want the tension as well as the resolution, right? They just don't, they don't just want to know how it ends, right? They want to know how we got there, what happened along the way. Our next discussion is, would you read a chronological biography about a person who was not famous? What do you guys think about that? Only if it's amazing. Why, Liz? Why do you say that? Well, because I find that people find famous people intriguing just because they're famous. Whereas if someone's not famous, the thing that'll pull you from page to page, even if you don't know what's going to happen, mm -hmm. is that it's this amazing writing that keeps you wanting to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? Yes? No? It's hard to distill the why. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Those are great points, guys. Um, here is my argument for not chronological narratives. Um, typically, we only want to read chronological biographies about people who are already famous to the general population, like Prince Harry or Winston Churchill or Mother Teresa, right? Um, we already know where those people ended up in life, right? We know who Winston Churchill became. We know who Mother Teresa became. We are incentivized by learning how, right? The details, how did they become those people? Besides that, we read to discover, right? And so, Two very different incentives are keeping us turning the pages. Um, for a chronological biography, it can capture, um, if, it's, if it's about a famous person, uh, it captures their whole life, right? Like we talked about, birth to death, 
whole life. Um, it captures the order of events. That's really important, right? If we're reading about Mother Teresa, we want to know exactly like what happened in her life along the way. And we probably want to know it in order, right? And then, uh, so we're familiar with the plot of her life, but we're incentivized by the details. On the opposite side, for a non-chronological narrative about somebody who's not famous, uh, you can capture immediacy, right? Um, which we kind of talked about before. You can kind of be right there with them in the moment. Um, you can use retrospect or flashbacks, which is really important. Um, and it's a huge uh, benefit, I think, to this type of writing. Um, but here, it's the unknown, right? Um, so does that make sense? Like, you're incentivized by trying to find out what happens to this person next, but that doesn't have to be in order, right? If we start out with their childhood, that might not necessarily keep us glued in, right? But if we start with who they are now, this person who's not generally famous, if we start with who they are now, then we kind of work backwards. We kind of want to know how they came to be who they are now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so even though we just talked about plot structure with the pyramid drawing on the previous slide, that doesn't necessarily mean that this, this project that you're working on has to be in chronological order, right? So be dreaming about that. How can you move the events of this person's life around to create more tension, um, to create more movement, more engagement, more incentive for the reader to keep turning those pages. And the neat thing about writing from a Christian perspective um, is that we are very accustomed to looking at our lives in retrospect, right? God is constantly in scripture reminding us to look back, to remember um, what he's done, how he's been working in our lives, how he's been faithful. That's an advantage, I think, that we have as Christians. Is we are already used to looking back. Um, and so, um, yeah, anybody have any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah? Um, I watched two episodes and then I realized I was going to be too invested to keep doing my life so <laughs> I stopped <laughs> can you can you maybe like describe to everybody what because I think I know what you're getting at but maybe yeah, just explain so if you haven't seen the show it's basically following the life of a set of triplets and it kind of basically jumps back and forth between different time periods of their life so, uh, and then it also like talks about the one of their parents as well. Um, so I don't know. It'll just like in one episode, it'll cut back and forth between like uh, their parents with them when they were little, like babies, and then like elementary age, and then it'll cut back to when they're their current lives where they're in their mid thirties um, and have their own kids, and then yeah, kind of just like jumps back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you learn more things about them, more details of the story come out. What show is this? This is us. Oh, okay. And it doesn't matter that it's not chronological. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is kind of crazy. Yeah. How long did it take you to figure out that they were all related? I mean, they tell you up front. They tell you up front? Oh, that's so helpful. Okay. So it opens like that. Thank you for sharing that. That was a great example. All right. Second, uh, Second to last section here. Uh, we're going to talk about navigating vulnerable spaces with people. Um, we've already gotten into this a little bit, but um, yeah, I've got four thoughts on this that I want to talk through with you guys. Um, when you're given the privilege of sitting down with somebody and starting to write down their story, honor the honor you've been given. Um, you, that's sacred space right there. You know, you've been given this window into a person's life, and that's so significant. Um, above all, you need to maintain trust with that person, whatever that looks like for them, uh, and stay humble in it along the way because it might not transpire the way that you want it to or think that it should. It might look different. Um, like I said this morning, I, I once heard someone compare uh, writing a book to like running a marathon. Um, and I, I want you to hold that analogy in your mind. Of writing, writing a book with another person is like strapping your legs together and then trying to hobble for 26.2 miles, right? Especially if you're trying to write a book. If it's a shorter piece, it's going to be a lot easier, right? Um, but you do need to be in sync. Right? You do need to communicate really well, um, or it's gonna get it's gonna get difficult. Uh, number two is trust the process. Um, try things out. If they don't work, delete them, and then keep the momentum that you have with that person. Just as you, as a writer, have had to relax into your own writing process. Um, and sometimes come to the realization that you actually don't need paragraph B in order to get from paragraph A to C, right? But you had to write B in order to get to where you were going, right? But it's okay to then delete B. It doesn't need to be there anymore, right? You can make this more efficient and just have A and C, right? Um, but the person that you're working with might not be accustomed to that rhythm of writing, right? Um, so if you say, actually, I, I don't think we need to talk about your great grandmother's 98th birthday party, and that's a really sentimental thing to them, you need to talk through that, you know, you need to communicate. And then what happens if they are adamant about having that in this piece, you know, what happens then? Think about those things. Um, and remind them not to get frustrated along the way if it doesn't pan out. If you try things and they don't work, remind them not to get frustrated. Remember that they may not be a writer like you. You need to walk them through what this process is, what it means to just freely destroy things that you've worked really hard on, right? That's a hard thing to do. Coach them. Coach them through that. Uh, number three, dignify, don't 
stereotype. Uh, this primarily applies to if you're writing about people who are not from the same cultural background as you. Uh, you're not going to be able to do that as easily as people from your same background, right? Um, I would encourage you to exhibit people as they are. I know that that seems like so simple, but it is so easy to use stereotypes to fill in gaps where we maybe don't understand as much or don't know what to say about somebody. And I just encourage you not to do that. Um, do your utmost to exhibit people with intention um, as they are specifically without using stereotypes to fill in the gaps. And we are going to talk about this um, in a little bit more detail. I read a book earlier this year called At Home in the World, which is about this woman who takes her family of, it's like she and her husband take their family of like five kids on a nine-month trip around the world. Um, and it's a super fun read. I loved it. But I want to talk about this one paragraph uh, that she wrote about an Aboriginal Australian tour guide that they had. Um, and as we read this, I just want to hear, what did you like about this description? Um, what did you not like? What made you uncomfortable, maybe? So does anybody want to volunteer to read this out loud for everyone? Okay, go for it. John is about 50 years old, stocky, with thick hair. He's wearing khaki shorts, a polo shirt, and hiking boots. I'm mildly disappointed he's wearing Western clothes instead of native Aboriginal attire, then kick myself for even having that thought. Our kids are entranced by him and his cheerful disposition. Kids, kids, come over here and we'll first walk around the campfire three times before entering the forest. This place is sacred territory to my people. He is as excited as a giddy child on Christmas to introduce us to his home. Thank you. What did you guys like about it? What did you hear in there that you liked? She was honest. She was honest. Where was she honest? Uh, in her disappointment, but he was wrong. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so great. I was yeah. like, thank you for being honest yeah. about that. That was helpful. What else did you guys like? That she quoted him. Mm-hmm. She quoted him specifically. She shows his excitement at just doing what's his job, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, it's pretty specific that he takes joy. He describes his, the kids are entranced. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you guys not like? Is there anything that maybe rubbed you a little bit the wrong way? The giddy as a child on Christmas is kind of a cliche one. Yeah. Me too. Me too. It's not wrong. Just her creative choice, right? It's not bad, necessarily. Did I think to myself when I read that, couldn't she have thought of something maybe a little bit more dignifying? Not equating him to a child, you know? That's personal, right? That's subjective to me, right? That's my opinion. Um, but this is what I'm trying to get at is how can you elevate people and not put them down, right? Not that she's necessarily trying, she's not trying to do that. This is with the best of intentions, right? But how can you be the most faithful to who people are and what they do? 
And then I would encourage you to ask these two questions. How would this person feel reading about themselves this way? Even if you think to yourself, there's no way they could ever find my blog. There's no way. Nope. No possible way they could find my blog and read this. That's not the point, right? That's not the point. The point is that if they did, how would they feel? Do unto others. How would their friends and family feel? Right? Like we talked about before. Helping friends and family read things. Yeah. How would they feel about that? Last point in this is gauge vulnerability. As you work with different people, like a therapist, you may receive accounts of different hurt or pain that someone has experienced. Um, unlike a therapist, you may not be capacitated to help them process through that. And that's going to be really hard. Um, I've gone through a few lay courses on trauma healing in the past few years. And the best advice I've heard for people um, who don't have clinical licenses, who are working in non-clinical capacities, is this. Listen. Just listen. Because you probably won't say the right thing if you try to say anything. And even if it was the right thing to say, it's not going to fix it. Right? And sometimes, just the act telling somebody else what has happened to you can be healing for that person. So know that even if you can't think of anything to say after you've heard something really hard from somebody that, you, that you're working with, that, get, that can be a gift alone. That will bless them. That act of you sitting with them and listening is enough. Um, yeah. With that, uh, I would encourage you guys to protect them from sharing anything that they are maybe even slightly uncomfortable with printing. Um, that could be maybe damaging to their relationship with other people, which is libel, right? Um, help them guard against that because once it's out in the world, no matter what reconciliation may happen in the future, it's already out there, right? Those words are already, are already in print. Um, so help them, help them figure that out. Help them make those decisions, those hard, hard choices. Um, the best description, the best definition of libel that I could find online is this. It is a false statement published as fact that harms the reputation of a living person, existing business, or other organization. Um, so there's a lot more on that. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> but if you are finding that you are starting to tread that kind of ground with somebody that you're working with, that they are writing things that could harm the reputation of someone that they're writing about, 
you should look into that. Make sure that you protect them in those those unsteady places. Um, and get legal counsel. <laughs> um, yeah, libel is a very, very serious thing. So know that that, that is out there um, and it is important. Uh, at times, you may find it difficult to discern whether your subject could be oversharing with their audience. So we're going to talk through this a little bit, but have any of you guys heard of Sandra McCracken? Anybody? Yeah, she's one of my favorite worship artists. I just love everything that she writes. It's beautiful. Um, she recently wrote a book. It's called Send Out Your Light. Uh, she was married uh, her first marriage was to uh, the lead singer of a very popular Christian band. And they were married for several years and had two children together. Uh, and then sadly got divorced in 2013. And I want you guys to listen to how she writes about this in her book. Does anybody else want to volunteer to read? Okay, you don't have to. I won't. Oh, thanks, Donna. I mean, go ahead. That'd be great. I love having, I think it's good for people to hear not my voice. <laughs> thanks. My first marriage ended in 2013. Divorce was not in my wildest imagination. Categorically and intimately, I was confronted with the shock of realizing that someone I thought I knew so well was not who I thought they were. But the confinement of this trial... Sorry, but the confinement of this trial did not burn up my identity, it strengthened it. I was compressed but not consumed by heat, and at no point did the Holy Spirit leave me alone. God was faithful. I found my voice to sing again in that darkness by setting some of those beams of light to music. Thanks, Donna. This passage is where she shares the most about that event, and there's not much there, as you can see. Um, what are some boundaries that you guys heard? What are some boundaries well, that you see there? Any of the awful details. She did not go into any detail. She's talking about herself. Yes. She's not talking about her ex-husband. Not his name, not what he did, nothing. It's not wrong to say that someone cannot be popular. There's no indication of them doing anything wrong mm -hmm. or doing anything hurtful. But mm -hmm. But it's such a great way of saying that, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. But I thought that was so great because it's not necessarily like bashing him as a person. It's just, again, it's about her. Anything else? What other boundaries do you see? Yeah, she gave no detail. One of my favorite things that I've thought about as I've read this more, she didn't say anything about her kids. She didn't say anything about how her children responded to this. And I thought that was so great. Like, her kids are still pretty young, but some of them, like, could probably make the decision for her to talk about this, right? But it's not really a good place for that, right? It's, it's her story. It's about her. You know, it's about her experience in that divorce. Um, and it's not necessary, right, for her to say how her kids reacted. Um, you can find more information on her Wikipedia page about this, you know, but she's not responsible 
for what's on her Wikipedia page, unless it's linked to something that she wrote, right? What she is responsible for is what is in this book. And I think it's such a great example of not oversharing for the sake of her family, for her kids, right? Um, and not committing libel. Both good things. Um, any questions before we? Yeah, Liz. Like right now, you're you're saying more of the opposite, where you're like, don't share too much about them, whereas you might be like, mm, you may not want to share that, and they're like, oh no. And it depends, yeah. right? It totally depends. It depends on what happened. Uh, it depends on whether it involves other people, right? But you can thoughtfully think through the implications of them putting those things into writing and how it will affect other people that maybe they're not thinking about, right, as they're writing. And she gives God the glory. Amen, right? I do just love that. Yeah, and listening to some of her music, like, you know that, like, she was crushed, you know, um, but not consumed, you know? Like, she... Yeah, she does write beautiful music out of this season of her life and gives God the glory for bringing her through it, which is just beautiful. Um, yeah, she's wonderful. Anyway, listen to her music. <laughs> when should you step back? Uh, so let's rewind back to 2017. Um, I had accepted that three-month project. Well, it was a three-month project to work with this gentleman. Uh, to start writing his book. Um, he had worked in international ministry for most of his career. Um, and I was supposed to interview him whenever he had time and uh, and then put some of those those stories into like a chapter format. That was my that was my job for the summer. And I quickly realized it's not gonna be an easy project. Um, at the time that I worked with him, he really did not have the time required to finish a book. But he thought that he did, which was the problem. <laughs> um, whenever I tried to interview him, like I said, I'd go off on these rabbit trails, which, again, partially due to me not being fully engaged in the conversation, right? That notebook really hindered us. Um, so about once... You know, every few weeks for three months, I'd go into his office and he'd just share whatever he felt like sharing, you know, every rabbit trail, you know. And so what I ended up with, you guys, was these patch, these like little patches of stories and like half-baked ideas. Uh, and to my great chagrin, uh, it occurred to me that he thought that I could put this into something legible in three months. <laughs> Uh, and needless to say, when it was over, I honestly thought that it had been a total and complete waste of my life. <laughs> and, uh, it was pretty discouraging, but a uh, quick side note here, this is not where I'm going with this, but a quick side note in January of this year, he let me know that he was going to give it another shot because after that he kind of got busy with other things and just shelved it. The whole thing just shelved it. And I was like, okay. I'm fine, I'm fine, it's okay, it's only three months of my life, it's fine. Um, 
And uh, he told me he was going to give it another go. And he asked if I wanted to help with it. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him and say, you know what? Writing a book is like running a marathon. <laughs> Are you going to train for this? <laughs> you know, Are you ready for the time it's going to take you? Are you ready to sit down? And then I said, really don't think that I am the right person to guide you through this. I don't. And I knew that he didn't trust my guidance, right? I knew that he didn't. It wasn't probably just the notebook. He didn't really trust my guidance and my my ideas with how he should write his book. And so I said, you know what I think you need is a professional ghostwriter because that, like, you're going to have, an, you'd have an agent to connect you with a ghostwriter. Like, there's a lot of pressure professionally for you to be involved in this process. So not only is it going to behold you to giving the time that it requires, but it's going to give you a professional to, to work with, right? Like, you are beholden to this other professional, right, who has done this several times already. Um, he has an agent now. He has a professional ghostwriter. He let me read the first few draft chapters. It's going very well, in my opinion. He's going to a publisher. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, for them. Um, but I knew you guys. I was going to be able to pull that off for him. I knew that. Um, but solely because of that project, you guys, which I thought was a complete and utter failure for me on my part, um, meant that my college professor knew that I had done some biographical writing, um, that other people contacted me along the way, and eventually I got connected with Melody. And I loved Melody's story. Oh, sorry. Um, wasn't planning. Um... The Lord really spoke to me when I read Melody's book that she had drafted. And, um, yeah, I just want to say you never know where things are going to lead you, even if they feel like failures. Um, yeah, Melody's has been my, my great joy, my favorite project to contribute to thus far. And um, I never would have met her at all if I had not tried this three-month thing that didn't work out, right? And so I just want to encourage you and say, even if you come to the point where you realize that the person you're working with is not ready to give the time that this project needs, um, or that you are not the right person to guide them through that process, that is okay. And it could still lead you to something even better. God has. Um, anybody have any thoughts or questions on that before we move to our last section? Yeah. What is the difference between a biographer and a ghostwriter? Oh my goodness, great question. Uh, typically, ghostwriters are not mentioned on the cover of the oh. book. Yes. So when we looked at the cover of Nelson Mandela's book, the name Richard Stengel is nowhere. Nowhere. Not in, like, the copyright page. Like, nothing. Unless you're online and you're digging around. That's me. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, if it's a biographer like Laura Hellenbrand for Unbroken, she got full credit for that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really want to want to get into the nitty gritty of that because there's so much even I don't know okay. about it. But there's lots to read. There's a big difference. There is a big difference, yeah. But it's most I think it's mostly to do with how that's credited and how you're paid for it. Yes. It sounds fascinating. Right? I know. I was like, gosh, do we really have time to talk about ghost writing? I don't know. Yeah. I was like, okay, focus. focus, focus. Exactly. <laughs> That's my hope. That's my hope. Be inspired too. Um, so we're going to end with the why. Why tell others stories? Why make art at all, really, is the question. And as I was thinking about this, um, I started kind of separating my ideas into two different audiences. For an audience of believers, I think that we write to encourage them with the testimonies of other people in the church. Um, To remind them of how God is at work right now in the church. For those who don't yet believe, it is to uh, evoke the questions in people's hearts to which the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate answer. This is one of my favorite quotes. I have it written in a lot of places. Um, But what can that look like? I know that that's kind of vague. Um, So I started thinking about this. What does it mean to evoke questions in people's hearts. Um, I think it means that a story can depict how beautiful sacrificial love is. Uh, It can be challenging what people believe about truth, right? There's so much today that's saying, live your truth, whatever that is, right? Um, But your writing can show that there is absolute truth in the world, right? Uh, It can tell a story of how healing forgiveness is when the world says that forgiveness is weak and cowardly, right? Uh, It could depict a struggle between good and evil, uh, or it could convey truth about what we really desire, what we all really long for. Because all of these things echo the reality of the kingdom of God on earth. All of these things echo the reality of the kingdom of God on earth. When you are doing your writing, whatever it is, whether biographical or not, I encourage you to sift it with Philippians 4.8. Ask yourself... Does this cause others to think on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise? Does it draw their minds elsewhere? Does it encourage people to focus on the things of the world instead? So let's recap. Why tell their stories? To encourage believers with testimonies from the church to evoke questions in people's hearts, to echo 
the reality of God's kingdom on earth. To help others think about good things. And ultimately, to bring glory to God. The world's vision of success for written works is that they get published. And that's all. <laughs> right? In the eyes of the world, if you write something and it doesn't get published, what's it worth? Right? That is not God's vision of success. As you do this work, whatever it is, I encourage you to surrender it to the Lord. And I would invite you to pray and ask him what brings him the most glory as you do it. Because even if you spend hours and hours interviewing somebody and it never becomes anything more than a rough draft, you will bless that person just by listening to them. By bearing witness to God's faithfulness in their life. And this is my last thought before we close, but... Um, do you guys ever get discouraged by, like, the sheer amount of free reading material that there is online <laughs> and think, why would, why would somebody ever care to read what I have written? That's what I think to myself sometimes. Why would people even bother when there are thousands of other voices out there that are free and more accessible, right? Um, but do you guys remember in 2018... When those boys got stuck in the cave in Thailand, do you guys remember that? How that was on the news? Millions of people were logging on every day to get updates on those boys. And every person that got online was looking for one thing. They were looking for hope. Right? Because we all ache for good news so much right so in the midst of a world filled with voices that say otherwise you can be one more voice saying that there is hope there is truth there is honor and justice and purity and love in his name is Jesus. And in the end, good does triumph over evil. And God's kingdom will come and all will be well, right? That is what people want to hear. That is what our hearts long for. Before we close, I would like to read a prayer from Every Moment Holy. Um, if you would just close your eyes. I know I've been reading lots of things today and looking at a lot of things, but just take a deep breath with me. Close your eyes. A liturgy for the labors of community. Our lives are so small, or low, oh Lord, 
our vision so limited, our courage so frail, our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored of our own accomplishment or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice. Our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us in true humility and poverty of spirit remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love in paths of your design. You alone, O oh God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts one to another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, O oh Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our love and our labors now echo your love, and your labors, O Lord. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.